Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. You are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 125, Poet, Philosopher, Hierophant, Introducing Porphyry of Tyre. Avid listeners to the Schwepp may feel like they already know this Porphyry fellow. He wrote The Life of Plotinus, which we've spent a lot of time sifting for clues about the great Egyptian Platonist. He also wrote a work against the Christians, which we discussed in our special episode on how many origin of Alexandrias there were in the third century. But Porphyry was a deeply interesting and very, very important thinker for Western thought in a number of respects. And his works are crucial for the history of Western esotericism on numerous fronts as well. So it's probably safe to say that we don't know Porphyry yet. As Joseph Bidet said in his seminal 1913 biography of Porphyry, he is at once one of the most famous and one of the least understood among late Platonist philosophers. So in this episode, we'll introduce the great Phoenician Platonist, discussing what we know of his biography, the really big library of works he left for posterity, and the enormous library of works which don't survive for posterity, which we know he wrote, all the while discussing his significance for Western esotericism in a basic way, and pave the way for a series of episodes devoted to specific Porphyrian questions in the history of Western esotericism. So, to start with Porphyry's life, what little we know about it comes from two main sources plus a handful of anecdotes. The first main source is Porphyry's own Life of Plotinus, in which he manages to insert himself quite a bit into the narrative, considering he only spent about six years with Plotinus at Rome. The second source is Eunapius's Lives of the Philosophers and Sophists, a 4th or 5th century collection of biographies, which is absolutely wonderful, but sometimes a little bit credulous about the great names that it covers. Eunapius's account seems to rely a lot on a work by Porphyry, the letter to his wife, Marcella, which survives. So the two works together can maybe be considered the second main source for Porphyry's biography. Finally, we have various fragmentary anecdotes and whatnot from later sources, mainly hostile Christian sources, which will crop up periodically as we go along. So here is a potted biography of Porphyry, hopefully leaving out any tendentious stuff and sticking to what we really can say with a great deal of confidence. Porphyry of Tyre, if that is how you say that, the name of that city, I've always wondered about that, was a Phoenician from Tyre in modern-day Lebanon. He was born around the year 232 CE, so he was about 18 years younger than Plotinus. Tyre was the town, you'll recall, that was long thought to be impregnable. So when Alexander of Macedon was conquering everything, he decided to conquer it just to prove that it could be done, or so the sources tell us. It's been continuously inhabited since forever, and was in Porphyry's time an enclave of the Phoenician people. Speakers of the Phoenician language, a Semitic tongue related to the other Semitic tongues of the Near East, but distinct from them, and also, of course, related to Punic, the language of Carthage, which some of our West African friends like Apuleius probably spoke uh, when they were growing up. So Porphyry wasn't named 
Porphyry. He wasn't even named Porphyrios, which is the Greek word that we get the name Porphyry from. He was named Malchus, which means king in Phoenician. He got the name Porphyry when he came west and became a Hellene. Remember, in the Roman Empire, Hellenes could be born, but they could also be made through education. When he became a Hellene, the Greek name Basileus, meaning king, was suggested by his Greek colleagues, but some wag gave him the nickname Porphyrios, he of the imperial purple, and it stuck. We don't know much about his early life, but he seems to have spent some time at Caesarea in his youth. Caesarea is modern-day Kasaria in the region Palestine, nowadays the state of Israel. And one anecdote, preserved by later sources, reports that he was beat up by a gang of Christian thugs in Caesarea in his youth, which might or might not have contributed to his authorship later in life of Against the Christians, the preeminent work of anti-Christian polemic from antiquity. In fact, other Christian sources tell us that Porphyry was raised Christian, and that this incident is what turned him against the faith, which some scholars think might be true. After all, Porphyry's surviving fragments of Against the Christians show a pretty in-depth knowledge of the Greek Christian scriptures. So he's clearly been exposed to them either by being raised reading them or perhaps through uh, research undertaken in the composition of his polemical work. We will speak more on Porphyry's stance toward Christianity in an episode devoted to Porphyry and the barbarians. At some point also in his relative youth, or in, in his early days at any rate, Porphyry is reported by Eunapius to have exorcised a daimon called Kausatha. We do not know where this is alleged to have happened or what happened exactly, but it is a report to which we shall most definitely return. Now, he pursued his education at Athens, then at Rome, from about 262 or 263 onwards. At Athens, he probably studied under one Longinus, whom we've met before in the podcast and about whom more in due course. And at Rome, of course, he studied under the great Plotinus. At some point in his early education, he will have got the Hellenic basics. We can just assume this. Greek language, if he didn't already grow up speaking it, which he might have done, knowledge of the literary canon, some rhetoric, basic maths and sciences, all that good stuff. And we know, incidentally, and we'll talk about this when we get to his writings, that he wrote on all of these subjects and more, so he will have definitely had some education in them. Once he had all this stuff under his belt, a good thorough grounding in Hellenismus, he was ready to major in philosophy, which he did with a vengeance, as we shall see. Now, the next thing we know about Porphyry's life is that while he was staying in Rome with Plotinus, he became suicidal for reasons that he never specifies. So he went to the house of one Probus at Lilibium in Sicily in the year 268 to convalesce. Meanwhile, while Porphyry was there, Plotinus died. When Porphyry returned to Rome at some point later, he conferred with Eustochios, who was a medical doctor and a faithful student of Plotinus, who, unlike Porphyry and seemingly everyone else, had actually stuck by his master's side 
until the end. The end was horrible. Uh, Plotty died of some nasty illness, as the gentle listener will recall. So it seems to have driven away all his friends. And Plotinus died a sort of lonely death. At any rate, this Eustochius seems to have been acting as some kind of literary executor for Plotinus, and has, he's prepared some uh, edition of Plotinus's works. But Porphyry gets a hold of Plotinus's works from him, and late in life, he writes the life of Plotinus and puts together the Enneads as we know them. So, was he still at Rome at this point? We don't know. We know he got married at some point to a woman named Marcella, but when, we don't know. After Plotinus's death, did Porphyry go on to teach philosophy himself? We don't exactly know. Um, there's some debate about this, but Eunapius and other sources think so. And they tell us, and this gets very interesting, that Iamblichus was Porphyry's student. More on that when we get to the upcoming episode on the great theurgy debate. Porphyry died at Rome at a very advanced age, sometime before the end of Diocletian's reign in the year 305 CE. So there you have it, gentle listener. Porphyry's life. A bit bare bones, but we shall be going back and filling in this skeleton a little bit with some juicy anecdotes as we go along. And I know you want to hear more about that exorcism. And so do I. So stay tuned. Now, during all of this time, or at least from a certain point at which he'd achieved some level of philosophic expertise, Porphyry wrote. He wrote, in fact, mountains of stuff. We've lost much more than we still possess of Porphyry's writings. And what we do have is a pretty respectable body of work. Porphyry wrote so much that is now lost to us, in fact, that no one can even decide on an exact definitive list of titles which ought to be attributed to him. He wrote about 60 works that we know about, but there's some controversy over them. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit. So something like 60 works, but uh, could be a bit more, could be a bit less. What kind of stuff did he write? It's actually hard to give a general characterization here because his output was so varied, but we're going to give it a try. But before we get into writings he's left us, let's just talk a little bit about his thought in a general way. First of all, as you will have guessed from that thing about performing an exorcism, Porphyry was very interested in what we might call the practical side of religion. Rituals dealing with the lower powers of the Platonist universe, daimones and gods and stuff like that. Uh, divination, all of these things were very much his cup of tea. So, in the life of Plotinus, 10, when he criticizes Aemilius, who was Plotinus's chief student before Porphyry showed up in Rome, probably, and he's always trying to take little digs at Aemilius, when he says that Aemilius became philothutos, that is, interested in ceremonial religion in an unseemly way, well, he seems to be implying that he himself isn't philothutos. But compared with Plotinus, Porphyry is philothutos as fuck. In the life of Plotinus 15, Porphyry relates the following anecdote, quote, When I read a poem at the Feast of Plato called The Sacred Marriage, and someone said, Porphyry is raving because of the many things said in the esoterically veiled language which accompanies divine possession, that man, that is Plotinus, said in the hearing of all, you have shown yourself to be the poet and the philosopher 
and the Hierophant all at the same time. End of quote. Now, this anecdote obviously shows us Porphyry trying to big himself up, which is a bit déclassé, if you ask me, but it reveals something about his approach, I think. He was into things, quote, said in the esoterically veiled language which accompanies divine possession, mustikos mit enthusiasmu epikekrumenus. Now, possession, enthusiasmos, could of course be translated as the more anodyne term inspiration. But as we shall see in coming episodes, we probably need to think about a model of actual divine forces entering Porphyry's body and speaking through him here. So possession, but in a good way. As we will see in our episode devoted to Porphyry's wonderful gem of esoteric hermeneutics, the On the Cave of the Nymphs in Homer's Odyssey, Porphyry was absolutely fascinated, not only with higher metaphysical side of things, but with the down and dirty day-to-day dealings with gods and daimones. And he saw the esoteric as the proper way to speak about these matters. He was, in short, a bit of an occultist, to use an anachronistic term. He was also a devotee of astrology, as we shall discuss in due course. So the sovereign occult science of his day formed part of his intellectual picture. And he was very interested in the problem of theurgy, as we shall also see in due course. And while an old reading of the evidence here has Porphyry, the true student of Plotinus, being really against all that stuff, while Iamblichus, representing the new irrational decadent decline and fall of Greek rationalism side of the coin, is in the opposite camp, believing in all that occult nonsense, uh, more current and I think more historically sound readings of the Porphyry and Iamblichus debate about theurgy has Porphyry very much in the theurgic camp, but definitely interested in the boundary line between theurgic ritual which is proper philosophic religion, as it were, and sorcery, goetea and related terms, which as a philosopher he has no time for. We should also note in this context of Porphyry's interest in the more recondite side of things, the very important passage in the life of Plotinus, which gives us our only outsider picture of Plotinus's union with the one, which we've talked about so much on the podcast. So having talked about the oracle that was delivered about Plotinus upon his death, he says this, quote, And so, to this divine man, Plotinus, who often raised himself up toward the first and transcendent God in his thoughts, according to the ways taught by Plato in the Symposium, see episode 34 of the podcast, That God appeared, which has no shape nor any form, established above noose and all the noetic reality. And I, Porphyry, declare that one time I approached and was united with him in my 68th year. Four times when I was with him, he, Plotinus, attained that goal in ineffable actualization, not merely in potential. End of quote. Now, the 68th year thing might be when Porphyry's writing this account rather than the year he claims to have attained to the union with the one. The Greek is unclear. Also, the final, not merely in potential, the ou duname of this passage 
is bracketed in Henry and Schweitzer's Editio Minor, and it may well be a scolion that has invaded the text. But none of this is too crucial. I'm just putting it in there for the sake of thoroughness. The point here, or my point, is that Porphyry, as interested as he may be in contacting the gods through various oogly-boogly methods, including oracles, insold statues, interpretation of the stars, is also into what we might call the stripped-down encounter with the ultimate reality, which can only be expressed apophatically. To put it in old-fashioned terms, Porphyry is into magic, but he's also into mysticism, or he is also a mystic. Now, these terms are deeply flawed, but I use this to give an idea of a kind of flavor that a lot of our listeners are going to be able to latch onto without taking either of these terms, magic or mysticism, very seriously. So Porphyry has a bit of the occultist in him, we can say. He also has a bit of the ethnographer in him, or maybe that's too dry a word. He's kind of an antiquarian and a lover of the curious customs, beliefs, and practices which make up the rich Greco-Roman mosaic that surrounds him. He's fascinated by religions, seeing in them genuine means of access to divine realities, but also seeing in them uh, receptacles for esoteric teachings, right? Uh, There is, however, one religion which he really, really dislikes, and that is, of course, the upstart movement known as Christianity. We should be getting to Porphyry's treatment of the Christians again in due course, and there will be some fascinating continuations and developments of the weaponized political and polemical use of the esoteric that we saw in episode 98 on Celsus and Origen. Porphyry's true love is clearly Greek cultural and religious history. But he also gives us a load of fascinating data on other non-Greek peoples of the empire, as we shall see. And speaking very generally, his wisdom tradition, the, the tradition of truth that he constructs, is a fairly recognizable Platonist perennialism that we've seen forms of before in the podcast. The Greeks, and especially Plato, are the right place to look for the perennial wisdom. And you can, of course, look to Homer for the perennial wisdom expressed esoterically, but Porphyry also, unlike Plotinus, not only shows a deep reading in the broader philosophic tradition, but cites loads of authors by name. People like Plutarch and Atticus, for example, who aren't even on Plotinus's radar. So he's deeply read and, and kind of deeply engaged with a long tradition of um, philosophy. He also engages with people like the Epicureans, whom Plotinus just tried his best to ignore, and he, he wrote refutations of Epicurean and Stoic thinking. But along with that, uh, that long Greek wisdom tradition, we have selected barbarian nations, non-Greeks, who also partook of the wisdom which naturally they hid within texts, in religious ceremonies, uh, the, the hieroglyphics of the Egyptians, customs which can be read as symbola, and so on and so forth. Now, Porphyry is very interested in what we might call ethnography or anthropology. He's also very interested in the oogly-boogly side of things, but neither of these facts should trick us into ignoring or underestimating his commitment to a Platonist metaphysics, largely in line with the theory of Plotinus. Late ancient Platonists often mention Porphyry in the pair Plotinus and Porphyry when they're discussing their their predecessors' views, which tells us something. 
Now, we don't have very much of Porphyry's writings on metaphysics. Most of what we have of him is dealing with uh, matters occurring lower down the chain of being. But to cut a long and very nuanced debate short, for now, we can say that from what we know, and often our best evidence for Porphyry's conception of the highest realities comes in fragments cited either by Christians or by people like Damascius, who seemingly doesn't have a good idea of what Porphyry thought, or is at least confused about it. Once we've assessed and weighed up all these troublesome secondhand reports, added to them what direct metaphysical speculations we do have from Porphyry that are undoubtedly by him, like the Sententiae, which we'll be talking about in a minute, what we get is pretty Platinian, I would say. The one is the first principle and is ineffable. Now, Porphyry often likes to talk about the one as God or as Father a lot more than Plotty did, but still, there's nothing that new here. It's just a little bit of more of a theistic approach to this primordial reality or non-reality. The one is the father of the noose. Porphyry's really into these father-son relationships, which he uses to express ontological dependency or emanation. So again, this is maybe a bit distastefully theistic from a Platinian standpoint, but it's still Platinian in, it, in how it's supposed to work. The one is the father of the noose, the noose is the world of forms, and the archetype for this world, the cosmos where we live, and from the noose arises a hypostatic soul, which then does the work of creating the cosmos in the usual, rather complex, late Platonist way. Now, I've just brushed aside a lot of uh, controversy, but I'm going to assume that this controversy isn't of deep and burning interest to our listeners. Some of our listeners who are real lovers of this stuff might be saying, yes, but what about the intelligible triads at this point? Well, we'll get to the intelligible triads. But for now, let's say we're in a basically Platinian universe. Uh, that's the judgment of people like Damascius and Proclus, and they would know, right? Or maybe they would know. Anyway, that's the universe, and we'll leave it there for now. Now, before we finish this episode, we should try to do a little survey of Porphyry's works. We have roughly 68 titles attributed to him, give or take, as we mentioned. They could be divided up a number of different ways for discussion, but let's go with the obvious taxonomy of works that really survive, works that survive in enough fragments to be reconstructed somewhat, and lost and fragmentary works. Within that tripartite taxonomy, we'll do a little thematic arranging as well. We should say here as a preface that no one can agree very much on when Porphyry wrote stuff. We have a few datable pieces, but mostly it's, it's you know, anyone's guess. So he may well have had an early period and a late period and so on, but we just don't know. Some scholars, notably Bidet in his biography of Porphyry, have had trouble with the idea that Porphyry, who studied with Plotinus, the great final pinnacle of Greek rationalism in ant late antiquity, then went on to write oogly-boogly stuff. So there have been attempts by Bidet and others to, to push Porphyry's oogly-boogly material to his early career and then imply that once he'd kind of washed all that stuff out of his system with Plotinus, he went on to write the more metaphysical, more philosophical, more uh, logical, etc. works. But come on, if the guy is a poet, philosopher, and hierophant during his tenure in Plotinus' school, 
writing esoteric poetry and presenting it at the festival honoring Plato, we can assume that he, like the listeners of this podcast, stayed esoteric even after exposure to the powerful juice that is Plotinian philosophy. So, in the the drawer-marked surviving works of Porphyry, we have a number of very fascinating works. We have, of course, The Life of Plotinus and the Enneads, which are Plotinus's works edited by Porphyry. Perhaps, though, the most influential work by Porphyry is a work that doesn't really merit much mention in a history of Western esotericism, but I'm wrong about that, actually. It does. You'll see how it does as we get into the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, it, it is an absolutely crucial work for any study of Western thought as a whole. This is the Esagoge, the introduction to Aristotle's categories. This book, which is what it says it is on the tin, an introduction to Aristotle's work, The Categories, was translated into Latin by Boethius. It was translated into Syriac, Arabic, Armenian. It became a standard textbook on logic for about a thousand years after his death. And it itself had commentaries written on it by great logicians of the medieval period, like William of Ockham. So this book, the Esagoge, was composed probably in Sicily during the years 268 to 270. It contains the highly influential hierarchical classification of genera and species, from substance in general down to individuals, which has come to be known as the Tree of Porphyry. Uh, and it addresses the ever-popular logical problem of universals and particulars. Now, you can see a, a few examples of Tree of Porphyry diagrams from medieval manuscripts in the notes to this episode. They may well remind you of some other well-known diagrams familiar to students of Western esotericism. I will say no more here, but suffice it to say that that isn't, in my view, an accident. That there is something very, very esoteric to be found in medieval logic. But that's all in the future. Let's talk more about what Porphyry wrote. He wrote an introduction to Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, that is Ptolemy's great work on astrology, which we discussed in episode 88 of the podcast. He also wrote a commentary to Ptolemy's harmonics. So just science, basically. Porphyry wrote a relatively short piece called On the Cave of the Nymphs in Homer's Odyssey, which is, I think it's safe to say, our finest surviving piece of esoteric interpretation turned up to 11, which survives from antiquity. To see what we mean, tune into the coming episode on that very text. Porphyry wrote a book called De Abstinentia, or Periabres Empsuchon in Greek, on abstaining from insold things. This is a treatise in four books on basically why you should be a vegetarian. Uh, in that vegetarian vein, he wrote a Life of Pythagoras, which along with Iamblichus's On the Pythagorean Life is one of our two best sources for all manner of lore to do with Pythagoreanism, which scholars of early Pythagoreanism are also always poring over and trying to comb out something from the very, very earliest stratum of uh, Pythagorean material, which is always a difficult and tendentious task. But we can say here we have this Life of Pythagoras from Porphyry. We're putting it in the works that survive section, but it may be that this Life of Pythagoras is just one book which survives from 
a long history of philosophy that we know Porphyry wrote. So it may be that we actually, this should actually go in the fragments section. Nevertheless, it survives as the life of Pythagoras and it's a wonderful resource. He wrote his letter to his wife, the Ad Marcellum to Marcella, which is a hortatory work encouraging his wife to follow the philosophical path and including loads of interesting lore about the ascent of the soul. Last but not least, Porphyry wrote the Sententiae Ad Intelligibilia Ducentes, or Thoughts Leading to the Noetic Realities. Um, this is a, a series of almost notebook jottings in the style of, of a Nietzsche or someone like that. Little one-off statements about metaphysics, about the virtues, about preparation for the philosophic path, which are meant to sort of inspire you and purify your thinking and get you to move from the discursive world to the eternal world of the noose and the noetic realities. Um, this work is very fascinating. It's also probably, I'd say, our best source for Porphyry's metaphysics that actually survives written by Porphyry rather than second or third hand comments by other authors telling us what Porphyry believes. Now, those are basically the works of Porphyry that survive in extenso. See the notes to this episode for the best list we've been able to put together of the critical editions of all of these and also useful English translations where they exist. They don't always exist because Porphyry hasn't all been translated into English. He certainly hasn't been approached in the systematic way that Plotinus has. So it's catch as catch can. Now we're turning toward works that survive in enough fragments that we can really talk about them as works, but are still not complete. We have the Homeric Questions, which was a kind of philosophic stroke, philological uh, exploration of Homer. We don't have very much of that. The Sumictas de Temeta, the mixed inquiries, which has been partly reconstructed by Heinrich Dury in 1959 a interesting um, collection of philosophical questions on numerous topics. Against the Christians, of course. Now, we'll get into the whole uh, what survives and what doesn't of that work when we get to the episode dealing with Porphyry and these uh, non-Greek religious traditions. Porphyry, of course, wrote the letter to Anibo. Now, this is lost but survives in a good number of fragments, partly cited by Iamblichus, partly cited elsewhere by Eusebius and people like that. The letter to Anibo purports to be Porphyry writing to an Egyptian priest called Anibo, asking him a bunch of questions about the theology and religious practices of the Egyptians. But as it turns out, this work is an incredibly important node in this, this philosophic debate about theurgy happening in late antiquity, and we shall discuss it in great detail and with great relish when we get to that subject. He wrote a lost work on the Styx, that is the River Styx, not the Chicago prog pop band from the 80s, Styx. This work survives in nine fragments preserved by Stobias, and it seems to have been something not too dissimilar from the On the Cave of the Nymphs in that it was a esoteric reading of Greek lore about the underworld, finding metaphysical and other insights hidden within the um, poetical formulations of the early Greeks. 
A very important work that only survives in fragments is Porphyry's Philosophy from Oracles. Now, this book seems to have been an absolute stonker. Basically, Porphyry has collected loads of oracles, oracles delivered by a very interesting range of gods. Apollo's there, of course, but we also have Hecate and Hermes delivering oracles and a number of other figures. Porphyry preserved the oracles and then gave philosophic interpretations of them. From what survives of this book, we wish we had it all because it's absolutely amazing. People discussing the Chaldean oracles, which we have, of course, talked about in the podcast back when we were covering the second century, and which are about to come back onto the scene because Porphyry is actually our first reference to them, even though we think they're from the earlier period. They first appear in Porphyry. People trying to interpret the Chaldean oracles make a lot of use of the fragments from Porphyry's philosophy on oracles. We'll have to return to that. We know from the life of Plotinus that Porphyry wrote a refutation of the Book of Zoroaster, right? This was a Gnostic text that was circulating among Plotinus's Gnostic friends, whom Porphyry doesn't like very much. It's interesting because this is one of the few texts that we can really date with any certainty. It's also cited by Eusebius in the Preparatio, and in it, Porphyry proves using kind of philological and philosophical grounds that this book, which is claiming to be something by the ancient sage Zoroaster, is actually a recent forgery. Now, this is really, really interesting on a number of levels to me, but I especially like it because Porphyry is essentially debunking this work of the so-called Gnostics, but using the same basic tools that will later be used, for example, by Casobon in the Renaissance to debunk Hermes Trismegistus. In other words, this is one way of dealing with esoteric works that you want to delegitimate, but it can cut both ways, right? Just be careful if you're using this against your enemies that someone doesn't turn around and use it on you. Porphyry has a very important series of fragments which Augustine discusses in the On the City of God, which he calls De Regressu Animae, On the Return of the Soul. Now, this is wonderful cosmic ascent stuff and metempsychosis stuff. But all we have is Augustine's Latin translation of bits of it, mostly in Book 10 of the On the City of God. Omara argued in the 1950s that this book, the De Regressu Animae, was actually um, not a book at all. It was a different title given to the same work as we call Philosophy from Oracles, and that these were sections of that book, Philosophy from Oracles. Pierre Radeau countered this in 1960, and Pierre Radeau's arguments have remained, I think, the majority opinion that there are two different works on Philosophy from Oracles and on the Return of the Soul. But um, the question is a little bit murky. A lost, mostly lost work on statues or on images, De Simulacris in Latin, has a bunch of fragments in Eusebius's Preparation for the Gospel, Book 3, in which Porphyry gives us some wonderful esoteric reading of statues, hieroglyphics, religious imagery in general, treating them all as texts, hiding secret Platonist wisdom, great stuff. We shall, of course, return to that. Porphyry's philosophic history, as we mentioned, uh, is lost. It, it is cited quite a bit by Cyril of Alexandria in his Against Julian, And as we said before, it may be that the surviving life of Pythagoras belongs to this book, maybe not. Porphyry wrote a lost Timaeus commentary. We have a few fragments of it. 
He wrote a couple philosophic works addressing issues of what we would call free will and divine providence, the On What Is Up To Us, four fragments in Stobias, the Against Nemertius, seven fragments preserved by Cyril again. This was apparently an attack on an Epicurean philosopher named Nemertius, who had denied divine providence. Against the Christians, of course, is uh, one of Porphyry's fragmentary works that is of the greatest interest to us. Again, most of the fragments of this are preserved by this same Cyril of Alexandria. So that's a list of the most important fragmentary works of Porphyry. But the cool thing about Porphyry is our list does slowly grow. Uh, Very recently, Yuri Arzhanov has edited and put out a translation and edition of a new previously lost treatise of Porphyry's On Principles and Matter, which he found in fragmentary form, but a long fragment, in a Syriac monastic compilation. Uh, so that's out with De Krauter, and you can read new stuff from Porphyry that's just been published this year. And there are other cases of this, of new bits of Porphyry popping up. Now, let's briefly turn, before we finish, to the lost Porphyry. We know that Porphyry wrote a bunch of stuff on diverse subjects. He wrote on grammar. He wrote on philology. He wrote on rhetoric. He wrote on geometry. He wrote a book on the works of Julian the Chaldean, which is mentioned by the Suda, may have been a source for Augustine on on Julian the Chaldean of uh, Chaldean oracles fame. A bit unclear there. So there are a number of titles that we don't have anymore, but we know showed Porphyry as the kind of polymath he really was. Now, before we say goodbye to Porphyry for this episode, we should introduce and mention the question of the anonymous commentary on the Parmenides. Basically, in a nutshell, we have a anonymous late antique commentary on Plato's most vexing dialogue, the Parmenides. This commentary is fragmentary, but we have a nice big chunk of it. Now, Pierre Adot argued in 1968 that Porphyry is the author of the so-called anonymous commentary on Plato's Parmenides. This view has been taken on board. A lot of people thought it was well argued. However, it has recently come under attack um, by such scholars as Edwards Bechtel, Corrigan, and Rasimus. The main problem being that many of the supposedly Porphyrian characteristics identified by Ado in the Parmenides commentary are to be found in pre-Porphyrian Gnostic texts, which were unavailable to Ado in the 1960s when he wrote his book. Hence, he couldn't really include that data in his interpretation. However, some scholars still argue that Porphyry did write this thing. The whole question is very interesting for nerds of this sort of thing. This is where those pesky intelligible triads will come back into the question. And it's very important to understand as much as we can about this fascinating uh, commentary on the Parmenides, because it's so relevant to the development of highly apophatic philosophy stroke theology in late antiquity. When people try to write a history of Greco-Romans unsaying the first god, putting the first god in a truly transcendent position beyond all possible statements or predicates or characteristics, this work is definitely part of that story. So it's very significant where you put it. It's interesting enough, I think, 
that for the super nerdy among us, we can devote a special episode to the question. Now, we've introduced our guy, Porphyry of Tyre. I hope putting together this long list of titles hasn't been tedious, but rather has both served to show the breadth and range of Porphyry's amazing interests, the strange different ways in which he was influential, having written the most, perhaps the most prominent logical commentary for the entire Western Middle Ages, and having written extremely beautiful and uh, cryptic works of esoteric interpretation, like on the nymphs, having written hortatory works calling us toward the philosophic life, and having, you know, recommended both ritual and contemplative practices for obtaining direct contact with higher divine realities. All of this stuff is part of Porphyry. He's a very, very interesting guy. Now, it should have become clear in the course of this discussion in how many ways Porphyry is significant for the history of Western esotericism, but if that didn't become clear, it will certainly become clear in subsequent episodes. Join us next time as we delve further into the work and thought of Porphyry of Tyre, and in the meantime, be like the meanings hidden by the wise barbarians in the statues, in the hieroglyphs, and even in the divine names they use for summoning the gods and stay esoteric. <laughs>